Welcome to the 406th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome Monica Green, Eleanor Murray, Cecilia Tamori to discuss pandemic and endemic disease and where COVID is headed in that discussion. And I'm joined by co-host today, and no stranger to anyone who's familiar with COVID calls, Jacob Steer-Williams is here. Jacob, how are you? Hi, Scott. Good to see you again. Hi, everyone. Jacob Steer-Williams. I am a professor in the history of public health and infectious disease at the College of Charleston in South Carolina. Uh, we have a big episode here today talking about uh, the endemic discussion, which is everywhere now. Jacob, I'm really glad you could make time to join us today. Yeah, this is a topic that I think uh, we, we certainly can't cover in, in this hour, but uh, we'll take a crack at it. All right. Well, we have some real pros here to talk about it. So, Jacob, I'm going to um, make a few of the preliminary announcements, and I'll bring you back out in a few minutes, okay? Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch, or you can watch it on Twitter at US of Disaster. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And as always, please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, February 2nd, 2022, the full COVID vaccination rate, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center in Australia, is 79.8%. Vaccination rate in Indonesia is 46.3%, and in the Philippines, 54.7% of the population has received two doses of vaccine against COVID-19. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic. I'd like to continue that now. The headline is, a daughter mourns her mom's COVID death and tries filling her shoes. This appeared in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, February 1st, 2022, by Lataro Grinspan. Jessica Aguilar didn't grow up celebrating Dia de Muertos or the Day of the Dead, Mexican show of love for relatives who passed away. But the 23-year-old knows she will mark the holiday this year. She is already preparing for it. Inside Aguilar's Roswell home in Georgia, a commemorative altar is taking shape, a cornerstone component of Day of the Dead. On it are photos of Jessica's mother in whose arms she crossed from the northern Mexican state of Tamaulipas into the United States. Jessica was just one year old. Maria Angelica Ramirez Ramos, or Mama, was in her 20s. In the altar's photos, Maria Angelica is in a fuchsia frock celebrating her quinceanera. She's grinning and cooking for her husband, Jessica's dad, who moved away from the family in 2017. Maria Angelica died from COVID-19 on January 5th, 2022. She was 44. Her death thrust Jessica into a new role as de facto head of household in the apartment she now shares with just two younger siblings. Jennifer, a recent high school graduate, turned 19 the day after Maria Angelica passed away. 
Christopher is 14 and autistic. All extended family members live in Mexico. I'm old enough to take care of them, but it wasn't like this last week, Jessica told the Atlanta Journal-Constitution in mid-January. Last week, my mom was the one cooking for my brother and the one packing school lunches, and now that responsibility has been handed out to me, she said. I have to become his mom now. But I'm also mourning my mom, you know, so it's just a lot of heavy things that have been put on my plate. No one goes into their mom's old bedroom, which has signs of her battle with COVID-19. Alongside Maria Angelica's personal belongings are the pills she took to manage her symptoms and an oxygen tank. We're having a hard time figuring out what we want to do with that stuff, Jessica said. By nature, Maria Angelica tended to worry, an attitude that only grew more pronounced during the pandemic. As a diabetic, she knew the novel coronavirus posed a real threat. Being on high alert over a potential infection came with significant mental health fallout. Compounding Maria Angelica's stress over COVID-19 were persistent financial pressures to cover the apartment's $1,350 rent, a monthly challenge Maria Angelica worked in housekeeping. Jessica says her mother's lack of legal status meant she was often underpaid. As a beneficiary of the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, Jessica was able to obtain a work permit, which she used to take a job in the <clears throat> excuse me, which she used to take a job in the billing department of a medical office. She supplements that income with shifts, making smoothies at a health food store and delivering for DoorDash. If needed, she also reaches out to her father for money. He works in construction out of state and helps support the family from afar. Despite the ups and downs of 2021, the Aguilar siblings say they managed to enjoy Christmas as a family right before the symptoms started. Maria Angelica still felt well enough to prepare one of her favorite recipes for cochinita, a traditional Mexican slow-roasted pork dish. Christmas was so nice, Jessica said with a smile. It was around New Year's that Maria Angelica began feeling ill. First, she picked up a dry cough, then she lost her sense of smell. Unwilling to go to the hospital because her only language was Spanish, she stayed home, but her breathing deteriorated so quickly. Then in just four days, she became unresponsive. An ambulance came to take Maria Angelica to the hospital, where she tested positive for COVID-19 and was diagnosed with diabetic ketoacidosis, a life-threatening complication of diabetes that patients with viral infections are at a greater risk of facing. Around 5 a.m. on January 5th, Jessica got a call from the hospital. It was time to say goodbye. I went into the room while they were doing chest compressions. I was touching her hand. I was rubbing her arm. I was getting close to her ear, telling her, Mom, listen to my voice. You're going to be okay. I just need you to stay, Jessica said. Doctors kept doing chest compressions, and it was just not working. So I just told them, I think this is it. Aguilar household hadn't gotten vaccinated against COVID-19, according to Jessica. The family wasn't opposed to the vaccine on principle. They simply struggled to figure out how and when to get the shot. We were going to get it, but with my mom's work schedule and my work schedule and my sister's work schedule, we just couldn't find the right moment. In Fulton County, Georgia, the vaccination rate among the Hispanic population lags behind that of non-Hispanics, 56.5% to 61%. That's as of January 27th, 2022. In life, Maria Angelica's preferred topic of her conversation was her hometown in Mexico and stories of all the relatives she left behind. She dreamed of going back and visiting, but as an unauthorized immigrant, 
She knew she wouldn't have been able to return to Atlanta if she left, so she stayed for her kids, even though it made her lonely. My mom sacrificed a lot for us, Jessica said. She put her needs and her wants to the side, and I think that's so sad, and I wish it would have been different. Okay, I'd like to turn to the conversation for today, and we have a large all-star cast for this conversation. Let me introduce the members of the discussion today. Monica H. Green is a historian of medicine, currently serving as the Supi's Visiting Professor of the History of Science at Stanford University. She specializes in the pre-modern period and global infectious disease. She's writing a book on the Black Death that draws on evidence from genetics, archaeology, and historical sources to document the early origin and broad geographic extent of the second plague pandemic. Dr. Ellie Murray is an assistant professor of epidemiology at Boston University School of Public Health. She focuses on improving methods for evidence-based decision-making and human data interaction. Her work primarily focuses on applications to public health and clinical epidemiology, including applications to HIV. HPV, cancer, cardiovascular disease, psychiatric disorders, musculoskeletal disorders, social and environmental epidemiology, and maternal and adolescent health. Dr. Murray also conducts meta-research evaluating bias in existing research. And during the pandemic, she's been working on improving science communication. Celia Tamori is Associate Professor and Director of Global Public Health and Community Health at Johns Hopkins School of Nursing. She is an anthropologist and public health scholar who studies breastfeeding and reproduction, health inequities, and how corporate interests shape health and policy. And I, you met Jacob Steer-Williams just a moment ago. Jacob will be joining me today as a co-host for this special episode. Welcome one and all to COVID Calls. Thanks for making time to talk today. Thank you very much. It's wonderful to be here. Yes, great to be here. Thanks for having us on. Thank you. I like to start the way I usually do, which is to find out where people are calling from and what the pandemic situation looks like there. And so let's do that as a round, because I think it will be quite interesting just to get the different vantage points. And Ellie, I'm going to start with you on that question. All right. Um, I'm in Boston. And um, here, our Omicron wave has been moving downwards in terms of new cases, but we still have um, the ICUs are almost completely full still. We've still got hospitalizations really high. So um, cases are on their way down and we've seen wastewater coming down, but uh, a lot of people still having COVID right now. Um, a lot of people in hospital still. You're the second guest I've had from Massachusetts in two weeks who's pointed to that wastewater data point, Ellie. How 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 much is that big factoring into your thinking about the shape of the pandemic? Um, so I think that wastewater is kind of a nice early warning sign. Um, certainly we saw it ticking up at the very beginning of Omicron, um, even before it was really clear that cases were going up. And so I think that that's a really nice tool to have. I don't think, you know, as we see, the, the wastewater cases have been coming down for several weeks now, but we're still at, you know, 95 almost percent ICU capacity. Um, so, you know, it's not, we can't make our decisions just based on the wastewater, but it can give us kind of a nice early warning signal, I think. What's happening there on campus? Students are back, faculty are back, it's business as usual? 
Yeah, in a, I'm at Boston University, and um, we're back open. Uh, I'm not teaching this semester, so I don't have to be on campus, but the students are all on campus. We're not doing hybrid or anything like that this semester. Cecilia, let me bring you in on this same question. Where are you calling from? And welcome back to COVID Calls. It's really nice to see you. Yeah, it's great to see you, too. So we've had a, a very uh, bad wave over here, actually much higher than we've had in the past. Um, with very high hospitalizations, obviously cases, uh, hospitalizations, and now deaths as well. So we're coming down from that. We are still at a, a much higher hospitalization than uh, we would like to be, but we are coming down from there as well. Um, our deaths are still, you know, high, and uh, you know, I think we are in a better place than we were even just a few weeks ago, but. I think a lot of our healthcare workers are also very tired because they have been you know, really dealing with emergency situations and just an onslaught of uh, people who are very sick. So it's it's been a, it's a pretty tough time in Maryland, I would say. Um, I think we at the university are very privileged. We've had, you know, access to very good, you know, PPE and uh, good good protocol. So we have been um, very fortunate. We had some time to um, be able to reduce density as well. Um, but, you know, people are people are, are back and, you know, we're hoping that we're able to carry on uh, with the work, especially, you know, as our school relies on clinical practice. So it's, it's a, you know, tough thing to do, but they've managed very well considering the situation. We were chatting a moment before we got started today, and um, you showed us something quite wonderful, which is uh, in the midst of all of this, which is a new book, which has arrived, and we have to it. see it. I'm <laughs> greedy to I see am, the new books, always. I, I am really excited go. about it. This showed up in the mail today, literally right before, so I'm really, really <laughs> happy to share it with all of you. And Tell us what it is. Um, so it is the new Rutledge Handbook of Anthropology and Reproduction that. Sally Han and I co-edited, and um, it has been out for a little while, but our hard copies have just arrived, and so we want to thank, obviously, Sally is amazing, and all the contributors, and we hope that you use it, because it's a pretty exciting volume. Everyone who publishes a book in this time also knows the deferred gratification of publishing something, and, and it's extra deferred now, since we can't go all be with our colleagues in person very easily to to celebrate those accomplishments. So thanks for showing it and congratulations Thank on you. that. Monica Green, it's just great to have you back and mm -hmm. always look forward to talking with you on COVID calls. Where are you calling from today? I am calling from uh, Redwood City, California. Uh, I am here um, in uh, the Bay Area as a visiting professor at Stanford um, for the, the winter quarter. Um, so I'm getting a sense of both living in a new community and also working at a new institution and just seeing kind of how the pandemic has, um, has been implemented in terms of setting up protocols, in terms of masking, um, and, and so forth. Um, both where I live and, and Stanford are in, uh, San Mateo County and, uh, again, I'm learning how to navigate things, and I uh, looked up the the data for San Mateo County um, today, and 
was surprised actually to see that um, even though case rates are are coming down, um, they're still uh, they're still rather high, um, and deaths are actually up. Um, and that might be just kind of a, a a blip of of the data. And and again, I I haven't been reading this this data uh, frequently, so I don't know how to compare it um, with the larger trends. Um, but that is. Uh, has been an amazing experience for me, just kind of watching uh, protocols being developed. Uh, we were um, uh, uh, started the term on January 3rd, and the first two weeks were online. Mm-hmm. So, uh, And then the third week was just the graduate students, and then the fourth week, so last week, was the first time um, uh, there was full population of, of the campus. So that was a very interesting process to watch, too. And, and what are you seeing there? I mean, universal masking, people are, are following those rules. Are those the rules of the campus and vaccine rules mandate of the campus, enforcement? Uh, uh, yes, universal masking uh, anytime you're indoors. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, even though classes have, have become face-to-face again, um, uh, public presentations, seminars, and so forth are still being held online. Um, so there's there's still not a full transition um, back to face to face yet, and and I don't uh, I don't know if if that will happen this term. Yeah, thanks everyone for sharing those introductory remarks. It's always good to check in to see um, really what what I've experienced in every COVID calls that I've either been a part of or listened to is truly the the vastly different experiences that we're all having during this ongoing natural disaster. So our our discussion today centers around a, a rather decentered term. Um, endemic and endemicity. And, and I want to um, jump us all back to a moment in, in, in the late fall of 2021. So I read an article, I remember, and I went back and read this in advance of this conversation, October 27th, 2021, from the New York Times. It was by uh, Catherine Eben, um, How Will We Live If COVID Is Here to Stay? in that New York Times article. And, and she quoted Jeremy Farrar, who's the director of the Wellcome Institute in London. And, and here's what Farrar said in late October 2021. Rather than debate how to end the pandemic, we need to debate how to live with it. We have to start thinking, planning, and coming to grips in every way. This is now a human endemic infection, and it's never going away. By December 1st, 2021, Forbes magazine published an article titled Why Endemic COVID-19 Will Be Cause for Celebration by Dr. Robert Pearl. From that moment in early December, when people were thinking about holidays and holiday travel, the term endemic exploded in popular culture, and and it has increased in the month of January and as we enter now the month of February in 2022, it's one of the most used and associated words around COVID-19. So I want to start our, our discussion with, uh, you know, my brain only works at his, as a historian. So I'm trying to historicize even um, the last six weeks of how this term has been used. But I want to start with with you, Ellie, and, and with you, Cecilia. And and can you start us off with with the present? And what I mean by that is, what when epidemiologists use the term endemic, what do they mean today? Because so much of our conversation 
um, to come today is how how much misunderstanding there is around the word endemic and, and how it's being misused and how it's changed over time. So Ellie, let's start with you. How, how do epidemiologists use this term? Yeah, so I think that this is in some ways part of the confusion because there's not necessarily one single definition even within epidemiology. Um, but the definitions that exist are, are sort of relatively in the same space. So there's sort of um, conceptual definition of a disease that is occurring in a specific area in a predictable way over time. Um, and so that sort of um, const, you know, so, somewhat static, somewhat constant level of disease burden is often what we're talking about when we talk about endemic. But that doesn't necessarily mean actually constant because we can have seasonal fluctuations there. So um, when we're thinking about, you know, specifically trying to quantify is this disease endemic or not, then we have this mathematical definition, which is also not entirely, um, you know, clearly defined because it's basically over some unspecified long period of time, the average number of new cases from each infected individual um, comes to, come, comes out to one. But how long that should be um, is not really clearly specified. If it's a disease that doesn't have a seasonal pattern, then you might say, okay, a year or even six months. But you know, when we look at the flu, it's not clear that that's really averaging one <laughs> in a 12-month period. So even there with that more sort of specific quantifiable definition, there's some vagueness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm. Uh, so I, I've been trying to record. That's really helpful. Thank you. Um, recent uses of this term, and in in the middle of January, so the 17th through the 21st, the World Economic Forum's Davos agenda um, included a forum on this topic. And Anthony Fauci said said that he was cautiously he was asked this if COVID is already endemic or if it's becoming endemic, and he said one that he was cautiously optimistic, but he said, and this is the end of this quote. That's my definition of what endemicity would mean, a non-disruptive presence without elimination. So not getting rid of COVID-19, not eliminating it, but it not being disruptive. And that's so fascinating to me to think about how, how endemicity is tied to this word disruptive, especially in this moment where like I'm in Charleston, South Carolina, where in, in my state, our case positivity rate was 33% today. Wow. Cecilia, you want to jump in with this definition of, of endemicity and, and add to it? I mean, I think, you know, Ellie's covered the, you know, the epidemiological perspective, but I think what I've been watching is how these terms are being hijacked. And so um, from, you know, to give you a little context for that, so uh, part of this is just, you know, work that I had been doing on commercial determinants of health and, and influence of uh, corporate interests in health. And I there's a wealth of literature on this across different domains, unfortunately. And so my work, you know, started in, in breastfeeding, but I started working on other areas and started, you know, mastering that literature over time because it was part of a pattern from tobacco to opioids to climate, to alcohol, you know, really you can pick whatever domain. And I, you know, I would go from different meetings because I'm on different kinds of projects and, and the meeting would sound sort of the same, except we would plug in a different word. And that is actually a frightening place to be. And so when I started watching the discourse around COVID, 
the endemic discussion fit into a much larger pattern that started two years ago. And the first of those terms that got hijacked was probably something around infection fatality rate and case fatality rate. But shortly after that, you know, followed by the big one, which was herd immunity. And herd immunity started getting hijacked almost immediately and misused to argue that what we really needed was was no mitigation strategies at all, because actually herd immunity would be something beneficial. So if we would just allow the virus to spread, then everybody would attain herd immunity and we would come out magically on the other end. And of course, erasing any part of the, you know, the people who might die in the, the process and, and, you know, whose lives actually uh, were valued or not. So that was the first one that was that hit on a much larger scale in the public as well. And then there were several others. And I think endemicity has joined that rather uh, illustrious and very uh, unpleasant group of terms that are not about the actual scientific construct at all, but about what they are being used to do and what they are being used to accomplish, which is essentially, we do not need any mitigation measures because here we are, and the city is great. And you probably have noticed there's a couple of articles that explicitly make that argument where they link it to the end of the pandemic. Endemicity, uh-huh. endemic, is this the end of the pandemic? I believe that was in the BBC. So I think that is really what we're, that's what I think we're really talking about here. And could I just uh, jump in and add, I think uh, Cecilia is very right that this is sort of part of the way herd immunity and endemic, they're being misused in the same way. And I think one of the key features that people are misusing is the idea that both, you know, they're, they're talking about herd immunity and endemic, both as points that you reach and then you remain in that state. Whereas really in a trajectory of a disease over time, that can just as describe an instant and you can come in and out of those different states. And I think that that is completely gone from the conversation around the way people are talking about it. Monica, let's bring you in and comment on anything that uh, Ellie or Cecilia have said. And then let's let's also talk about sort of laying some historical groundwork for this, you know, disease in the past becoming endemic. And what are the social factors that have caused that? Well, the um, big thing that has been important for me getting in dialogue with the public health people is we have yet to pin down when the, this new um, epidemiological and mathematical definition of, of endemicity um, uh, occurred. And I think that's a big void in the, the public conversation um, right now is most people, um, uh, as, as Ellie has said, do not understand the, the, um, either the common use of the term or the, the, the very particular use of the term. And the use of the term is, um, I've actually done some historical digging, um, uh, the last few days. I suspect that the word, um, has an, an earlier origin, but in English, I was able to trace it back to 1662. And, um, and, and then the, the usage is consistent, uh, uh, for the next several centuries up until the 20th century which is that endemic is a geographical location. 
Um, it's a, it uh, indicates that this is a disease that is characteristic of a certain region. And so this builds on a very ancient notion that we see in the Hippocratic uh, text, Airs, Waters, Places, where itinerant um, practitioners would go around different places around the Mediterranean and say, okay, in this place, people tend to have this disease. And in this place, people have uh, tend to have this disease. And so when the word endemic is being used, it's to talk about this same um, phenomenon. So one of the examples that, that uh, many people will probably recognize is goiter. So um, goiter, as we understand now, is a deficiency of iodine in the diet. And um, one of the earliest French dictionaries, medical dictionaries, that I looked at today said, oh, yes, and, and the people in this canton in Switzerland typically have goiter. And we would say, okay, there's... Um, a group of people that are distant from the ocean and do not regularly have fish in their diet and aren't getting enough iodine. So that's the way endemic has always been used. The situation right now is we're talking about a global disease. We're talking about Omicron that moved around the entire world and we're still trying to figure out the timeline of it, but it moved around the entire world basically in about a month's time. So what does a geographic delimiter um, in that traditional sense, how does that apply to a global population where there is never a cessation of transmission? And the other thing to point out about with the goiter um, example is that endemic can be used um, for uh, nutritional um, conditions, not simply infectious diseases. And so it has a much wider range um, in, in that traditional usage. And um, yeah. Uh, so, so we really need a lot of, lot more clarity. It's being used very, um, uh, just in, 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 uh, inappropriately. Um, I mean, if I could just push that a little bit more, Monica, thank you for that. It, it's being used politically, right? Yes. And, and I think what's, what's really interesting as, uh, as a student of the history of epidemiology and, and someone is, that's interested in in how that that discipline has 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 grown and changed in the last a couple hundred years, um, you know, I've studied 19th century epidemiology pretty carefully in the last couple decades. And endemic is a word that's used all the time. And 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 by the 19th century, it's it's used geographically, as you say, Monica. It's it's diseases of regions. It's it's based on on this idea of you know what. What is it? What was a seed and soil metaphor? And so a disease like cholera uh, was called endemic to Southeast Asia. It could erupt pandemically, but it was it was endemic to a region. So endemicity had nothing to do with what today we would call virulence. And, and that's what's so fascinating to me is when the way that that endemic is being politicized right now, it, it means to people who are using it less virulent, stable. It means um, something that's not lethal, something that's seasonal. And, and, and that's never what this term has, has mm -hmm. meant. Um, mm -hmm. and, 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 and I think, Monica, what you said earlier about this historical tra trajectory, my sense is that as the field of epidemiology in Western Europe and North America in particular started to disciplinize from about the 1930s to the 1950s into mm -hmm. 
really start to to take on um, new mathematical modeling that the notion of endemicity started to change um, would be mm-hmm. my guess. And, and that's the same time of the emergence of global health. And mm-hmm. Cecilia, I want to bring you in here as a global health you know, expert. And, and, and I wanted to push you um, and ask you about like what you think about that. So we see so many big changes in global health from the middle decades of the 20th century, not only like Western countries flouting this new like heroic sense that they're going to come in and solve global health crises, which is like as everyone on this call knows, like a legacy of colonialism and in some ways a replacement of colonial tropes of tropical medicine. Um but but the disease landscape, particularly of infectious diseases, starts to change. You know, by 1950 in Western Europe and North America, the leading causes of death are heart disease and, and cancers and accidents, number three. And around 1950, the leading death, leading causes of death and what we now call the global south are still the major infectious diseases. So how does that changing landscape of global health change the notion of endemicity? I mean, I think that the key the key observation, you know, which you also, you know, laid out in your thread on Twitter, which was wonderful to see, you know, different threads being tied together, is that the global history and politics of the terminology then sets the stage for whatever these terms become. And I think that that's something that that is, you know, often not taught in schools of public health. So in general, you know, um, historicizing some of these constructs is not always included in the curriculum. And I think that the entire framework, that whole colonial landscape of how diseases were assigned to particular places and populations, of course, right, you know, and the sort of connotations that go with the, you know, superiority of Western white Europeans and the sort of inferior diseased bodies of the other places that they were colonizing, um, you know, are all tied up with all of these constructs. And so I, I think one of the things, one of the interventions that we can make from multiple disciplines is to help people understand that these concepts and the entire history of public health isn't something that's fixed it's something that has changed over time and that is intimately linked to colonialism. And of course, colonialism is all about power relations and ways in which we think about one another. And so once we set that stage, then I think it becomes easier to understand how concepts can move to accomplish various kinds of aims. In this case, you know, moving them completely to accomplish something entirely different from even what textbook definitions are in our little schools of public health. If I could add um, one other point to, to what Cecilia has said, is that one of the things I am most struck by is a way in which a historical analysis has not been applied in the present situation of COVID, and that is this. Most of the diseases that in a global health context will be called endemic today, so malaria, um, leprosy, tuberculosis, um, and and so forth, are old diseases. They've been around for for a while. Um, 
uh, sometimes hundreds of years, sometimes thousands of years. They arose and they became embedded in global populations before germ theory. They became embedded before modern genetics. They became, um, even with flu, um, we still live with the uh, outfall of the 1918 flu pandemic, which came when, uh, before time when they, they could even document what, what, what viruses were, um, before there were the, the highly efficient masks that are available now. We live in a completely different world, and we should be defining what a pandemic response looks like on that basis of we have phenomenal power now to intervene that has never been available before, not even with HIV, not even with HIV um, when it was first um, described in, in the 1980s. just want to remind everyone that you're listening to COVID Calls, and it's a special COVID Calls roundtable today with my co-host, Jacob Steer-Williams. We're talking about endemic disease, endemicity, and COVID-19 with Ellie Murray, Cecilia Tamori, and Monica Green. And um, Ellie, I wanted to bring you back on on this, and there was a, um, a piece in the Atlantic written by Jacob Stern and Catherine Wu, and the, the title of the piece was Endemicity is Meaningless. That's a doesn't leave much gray area in the title there, but I want to just read a sentence from this and get your reaction to it. They say, if endemicity contains a world of possibilities, not all of them good or even better, then it makes a poor goal and an impractical conceptual framework for any action aimed at managing COVID in the months, years, and decades ahead. Simply declaring endemicity gets us nowhere. I guess I'd like to know what you think about that framing of it, and then I guess to build on that, if it is so meaningless, or maybe if I want to be a little more nuanced, if it's so contextual, um, then why has it become a policy goal? I mean, we we're talking about the linguistic you know, application and why people are drawn to the word, maybe a misunderstanding of the word because it symbolizes the end. But it's also become just a, a term in the policy debate now, a state we want to be in and even some politicians saying, oh, actually, we're here. So they were good. Just pulled the tent. What do you what do you make of all of that? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, I, I think the, po the political conversation around endemic has, has really evolved from the herd immunity con con um, conversation mm -hmm. because, you know, herd immunity is a much more clearly defined term, but most people outside of, you know, infectious disease, epidemiology, public health aren't really familiar with it. And so it was kind of easy to misrepresent it, but it was also easy to correct that misrepresentation by saying, here's the specific definition of how it works. Um, endemic doesn't necessarily have that benefit of saying, well, here's specifically how that thing that Fauci said where endemic is a win is wrong because it doesn't have that really clear definition. And so I think that that can kind of make it appealing to people who want something to talk about, something that sounds, you know, official to describe their point of view. And if they're not particularly caring what the actual definition of the word is, um, endemic is a useful word that sounds like something that is a, an end goal, sounds like, you know, something important. Um, 
but just doesn't at all have the meaning that people convey. And I think I actually talked talked with um, Catherine Wu quite a bit for that article. And, you know, she asked me, what, what word would you prefer people to use in, uh, instead of saying we're trying to get to endemic? And I think, you know, the idea we should be talking about is what does it mean when COVID is controlled? Right. We shouldn't be talking about what does it mean when COVID is endemic, because that's kind of meaningless, at least for most people, you know, especially with all the various different nuances of the definition. But controlled is something where we can start talking about what does that mean? What does that mean for us as a society? Do we feel like COVID is controlled at a certain death rate? Do we feel like COVID is controlled at a certain predictable ICU capacity rate? Um, do we need to increase our healthcare workforce? Do we need to decrease transmission? Do we need to change ventilation? What are the things that we need to do to control COVID? Um, the other thing I like about that word is that controlling is it's very clearly a verb and really right. reminds people that they have to be active there. Mm -hmm. That's really important distinction to make too, because if, if it's just a free-floating endemic concept, it gets unfortunately back to this notion that Disease is just out there in the land, and humans are have a separate world, and sometimes they interconnect. That control concept is one that uh, obviously forces that that distinction. Of course, mm -hmm. then it raises. We need the noun controlled by who? We don't yeah. need the pronoun there. How do you answer that? Um, yeah. So I mean, I think you know, in in the past, the successful infectious diseases where we have gone from really widespread uncontrolled disease to controlled disease have happened because we have made you know really fundamental changes: indoor plumbing, <laughs> you know, sanitation. Um, you know, uh, linking back to what Monica was saying, you know, there used to be malaria in a lot of parts of the U.S., Philadelphia, even Boston, and you know, draining swampy areas um, was a big part of that. So engineering projects to change the way that the land works, um, you know, also a lot of uh, insecticides to get rid of the mosquitoes. But, you know, there was a time when you could have called malaria endemic in the U.S. as well. Mm -hmm. And so that also highlights the fact that endemic is not the end. It's just a way station to maybe one day we could do something more about this when we have better tools available. Um, and if yeah, if, if I could add to that, one of the things that we haven't had enough discussion of is what are the examples of successful ends of pandemics? And it's very hard to make a list of successful ends of pandemics. You can talk about the end of an epidemic. And I think this is this is um, a, a, a discussion that, that hasn't been common enough, is an epidemic is um, and the the public health people can 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 add to this, but basically it's a spike, um, and you can and that's and that's exactly what we've seen with Omicron right now is a, a spike, and we can see it go up, and now fortunately we're we're able to watch it go down. But when is Omicron over? Is it when Omicron doesn't exist anymore um, as a variant? Because we're not going to see that anytime soon. Um, when do we ever see that? And the, the, the case of smallpox, which again, as, as everybody should know, is the only human disease, um, that has been sex successfully eradicated. Um, that was a very particular situation. Um, and, uh, it's, and there's, so the, the point is there's a, a lot of room. In fact, huge room, a world of room between one successful um, uh, elimination of a disease 
or eradication of, uh, of a disease. And the way we live with kind of bits and pieces of diseases uh, still throughout the world today. In the case of, um, and again, this should be stated um, explicitly, we are right now, um, February 2nd, Groundhog Day, still living with some of the highest cases worldwide of, of COVID. Um, yep. We need to keep reminding, if this is what we call endemic, this is a very sad situation. And it's a situation that's not going to be over anytime soon. If this is if this is end, what endemicity means, no, uh, that those are those are all such good points, um, Ellie. I want to circle back to something something that you said, and this is one of your your research areas as well is is health communication and and how epidemiological information gets communicated because you know that's something that that in my own research and the history of epidemiology I've been so fascinated by and with and and how it has changed over time. And and forgive anyone um, on this call, yourself included, Ellie, for, for me saying this, but I think one of the fundamental failures in this country, in the U.S., um, in the last two years, has been uh, health communication around the pandemic, and 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 I mean that from the from the very top and the federal level, all the way down to state and very hyper local levels. I mean, I see no health communication about COVID happening on a weekly basis in Charleston. Um, if, if, if you magically could put me in charge in some capacity in the White House, I would be having daily uh, press conferences about the state of COVID. And none of that is happening. So, so tell us how this big, and, and I understand it's, it's way too big for the time that we have right now, but can you talk a little bit about health communication? Yeah, so I think that this is a huge problem. I mean, one thing is, you know, if you go to the CDC's field epidemiology, you know, outbreak response handbook, the the number one thing there is very beginning, as soon as you hear there's an outbreak somewhere, you're supposed to put together a team that includes a communications person and a communications plan. And there are supposed to be daily updates to either, you know, while it's still small, maybe just the mayor, but as soon as it's anything larger to the public, to journalists on a daily basis. And the fact that we haven't had like very public daily updates is a huge failing. But also, you know, I've I, I don't know about the rest of you, but I've never seen a, a billboard or a poster or a sign on a bus stop saying, here's the symptoms of COVID or here's a number you can call if you want to learn more. And, you know, I don't get, you know, my my Hulu streaming doesn't get interrupted with like little 30 second clips about, you know, health education. And these are all things we could be doing. Um, they could be being done by the government. They could be being done by, you know, advocacy groups, but we're not seeing them at all. Um, but I think another thing that I, I've discovered, because before COVID, I was doing science communication, but more communicating how to do good modern epidemiologic methods to people who had really only had minimal epidemiologic training, but wanted to do those types of analyses. Um, and then, you know, as I moved to COVID, it was like, okay, kind of moving out more to the general sphere of the public. And, you know, the number of people that I still encounter who don't actually know what a virus is, who don't actually even know what the word pandemic means, and, you know, who, who don't know that there's a difference between SARS-CoV-2, the virus, and COVID-19, the disease, and that, you know, there could be conversations we were having around the relative occurrence of those two things. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things that I kind of pin this on is that, you know, we have 
science in, in, in K to 12 often really focuses on things like physics and chemistry and geology. Um, and then we have, you know, health class that focuses on personal health and maybe health literacy. But we actually don't really have a concept of public health literacy. And there's no point at which we really teach people public health. So it's not surprising that we find ourselves in, you know, the biggest pandemic since the 1918 flu with people making exactly the same arguments against masks and business closures and, and gathering limits that they were making in 1918 when we didn't even know what a virus was, let alone that flu was a virus. Just want to give a quick reminder that you are listening to COVID Calls. We're talking today with Jacob Steer-Williams, Ellie Murray, Cecilia Tamori, and Monica Green. And Cecilia, I want to bring you in. First of all, comment on anything that Ellie or Monica have just said. Um, but also a kind of, you know, sub rosa to this conversation throughout, particularly this last part we've been talking about, is still a presumption that people are acting in good faith or that they want to describe the scientific world and the world of disease out there in, in the way that is true and real to save lives. Um, and I guess I thought that about the world, even though I should know better since I'm a historian, uh, up until 2020, and then like many have been absolutely uh, stunned by the bad faith uh, and in the system and the opportunism, um, the grift um, around confusion. And, and you wrote a piece, a really great piece in, in Nature. It was published last year uh, in uh, late 2021, titled Scientists Don't Feed the Doubt Machine. And so I want to draw you out on that a little bit, because I think part of that is reacting to what Ellie was saying, just about how scientists and researchers, social scientists as well, can communicate more clearly about things like herd immunity or endemicity. Um, but... There's also there's a, a bit of warfare there. I mean, it's not just that you can communicate it poorly and hope oh, we'll get it better next time. There's a lot at stake because, as you, you call it, the doubt machine. Can you say a little bit more about what the doubt machine is as you see it? Sure. So so let's um, let's see if I can tie the two together a little bit. So I think the that historical movement of concepts around different kinds of strategic uh, relations and, you know, to ensure that certain people, uh, are in power over others, I think is relevant. And I think Ellie's comment about, you know, the, the lack of communication and the lack of sort of background knowledge for people. So all of those things, the squishiness of the concepts, you know, it's a real technical term we use, you know, in social science, squishiness. But, but there is that, you know, the malleability of those concepts. And then the sort of lack of knowledge and the, the less specificity that we have around a particular thing, it fosters you know, new opportunities to create uh, other kinds of conversations, perhaps. And I think what we have been seeing is active shaping of narratives and that those narratives, you know, that include the misuses of the concepts of endemicity herd immunity, IFR, all of the good, the big mild, one of my favorites, you know, you take discussions that may be completely legitimate in one particular realm, and then other kinds of actors enter that conversation and essentially move that term to do work 
for other kinds of purposes. And so the doubt machine, you know, is really, it was sort of a quick hand to describe this, this wealth of literature, you know, that was led by others. I'm not, you know, I don't want to take credit for this. This is, you know, decades of work by other people in different kinds of realms, you know, um, climate um, scientists, you know, at the forefront of some of this historians, you know, um, and of course, you know, the construct of merchants of doubt really is, is crucial to this where, uh, and, and the, the, you know, agnotology. So the, the creation of ignorance for strategic kind of purposes. When you have, uh, powerful interests that can profit from particular scenarios, you can shape narratives in many different kinds of ways, you know, through, for example, media ownership, which is a key part of this uh, landscape, to, you know, um, actually uh, funding science or in some cases, you know, um, for example, with tobacco, opioids or <laughs> creating pseudoscience. All of these narratives can be running parallel that then create a particular kind of illusion that a particular thing is happening. It doesn't really matter whether it is or it isn't, and it doesn't really matter what the definition is. Because if people think that there are particular debates, and if you're able to establish a le legitimacy to a particular perspective, even if that has nothing to do with empirical reality, then you already have one. People see different perspectives as well. Is it, you know, is it this way? Is it that way? I'm not really sure. I'm really confused. And that confusion then allows for intervention not to happen. So for climate change, you know, that allows people to not be sure, is it really happening, right? I mean, and that was sort of the foundation of the film, the recent film, Don't Look Up. So if you want to get kind of a quick tutorial of what I mean by the doubt machine, just watch Don't Look Up. We are apparently all cameos in that movie, we realize, in the public health world. Because there's there are these moments, right, where, you know, the, the TV hosts are debating, you know, this this object is coming is going to literally destroy earth but is it a good thing or is it a bad thing we're not really sure right <laughs> and you know, so they, i think in that's fact, they learned really to live at. with it there's an endemic <laughs> there's an endemicity moment in that film i like exactly. the riff you're on here because there is this sort of moment they're like you know maybe we can actually live with this thing it, we can mine it we could break it up and it's you you have to pause there for a second and say um, I think you're describing a, a world that is not livable, but it is profitable until it's not. And I think that's back to the stout machine, you know, aspect that you're talking about. Yeah. We should get others in on 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 this particular point. Monica or Ellie, did you want to comment on any of this part? Well, I, I would just um, like to add just from the long term perspective of of um, pandemics is that. Omicron uh, was the game changer. A lot of people think Omicron was a game changer because it was milder um, um, and it spread more. So more people have been affected it, by it. Um, first of all, a lot of people who have been affected by it. We're learning now were reinfections. 
Um, so uh, a, a clear indication that prior infections, uh, not simply um, uh, vaccination, uh, but prior infections were not protective against it. But the big important thing about Omicron is it came seemingly out of nowhere. Uh, we're going to figure out eventually where it um, came from and the circumstances that allowed it to arise. But the point is, is that, um, and, and we talk about this with, with certain other diseases, reservoirs, um, uh, the idea that uh, the uh, diseases can persist um, in uh, stages where they're, they're not necessarily visible epidemiologically. Um, and that's entirely the case with, with Omicron. Really, right now, there is complete doubt um, about uh, where it came from, other than the fact that it probably stems from um, a, a sublineage that was circulating around June uh, in, the, in the summer of 2020. So for a year and a half, we didn't know where it was. Um, uh, what else is out there? The fact, the fact of the matter is nobody can answer that right now. To, so for anybody to say that we're done with this um, pandemic, that we're even close to it, is looking at the face of, of just a lot of uncertainty, um, a lot of biological uncertainty um, uh, about what we're facing. And repeat, 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 this is global. So there is no ending this pandemic in one country. Um the, the entire reason that Omicron was able to get around the globe in one month is because we live in a, a jet age society where there is a constant international travel and that's not going to go away. Um, yeah. And I want to bring Ellie in on this too. So like Ellie, maybe let's take this from like a, a little bit more of a practical standpoint because, um, you know, I spent a couple hours today, this afternoon um, looking up, just how endemic has been used in the last 24 hours. And, and literally this, the all I just did, this is very anecdotal, right? This is not like some, like, I thought you did only archival research, Jacob. What are you, what are you, what are you doing with this uh, uh, data analysis scrubbing right. from media analysis? All right, go ahead, go ahead. Listen, listen, listen. So um, manageable is a word that came up over a dozen times in, a, in the last 24 hours. Seasonal. Mild, predictable, flu, rhinovirus. These are, this is where we are. So we're here February 2nd, 2022, and this word that this word endemic is concept. We can debate as academics until we're blue in the face, but ultimately, like, and, and I'm very interested in doing that, and I want to do more of that with all of you really smart people, but. Ultimately, like, I'm also really fascinated by, like, okay, we're, we're here, and this term is spiraled out of control as far as I'm concerned. And it now means February 2nd to most people in this country and maybe in the West and maybe in the world, and I don't even know how to start thinking about that. But framing COVID as endemic means the end of this whole thing. It means COVID's mild. It means maybe COVID's seasonal. And it means to, to so many people right now, it means we don't have to do public health intervention. What what you what we know to be public intervention health intervention. It means going back to individual responsibility, which is something we've heard throughout this pandemic. But I wanna I wanna ask you, Ellie, like knowing that we're at this moment then, what do we do? 
Yeah. So, I mean, I think that that's, that's a really great point. And, uh, you know, I, I tend to be more descriptivist in language as well. And I think you're right that, you know, whatever epidemiologists would like this word to mean, the fact is that it now no longer means that and it means something else. Um, and I think, you know, from that definition, we are not going to get to endemic probably ever <laughs> um, if we don't step up and do something. You know, what we've seen is that for a lot of the last two years, we have been relying on these individual level decision making, individual level risk mitigation approaches. And that's what's gotten us to this point where we're uncontrolled. Um, the public health <laughs> collective type responses are what get us to a point where people don't have to worry about it. But that doesn't look like no one worries about it. You know, when we think about the flu, there is a large, you know, well-funded global effort to track the flu from year to year, to monitor how the virus is evolving, to make sure that the vaccines are chosen each year to be the most likely to prevent the strains that are circulating that year, to know when to start, you know, requiring masks in hospitals or limiting guests or asking hospital personnel or healthcare you know, setting workers like public health employees whose school happens to be on a medical campus to, to get vaccinated. And all of these things are happening every year for the flu. But because we have it controlled, they don't affect most people. And that's the best we can hope for with COVID, to put into place this big machine of COVID control. That means everyone else doesn't really have to worry about it most of the time. I, I, can I just, I want to react to that real quickly because um, something you said there, Ellie, I mean, if I understand it right, then what you're saying is by misusing, continuing to misuse intentionally or unintentionally the term endemic, we will never reach endemicity. And um, maybe I'm not, par I'm paraphrasing, but I, that's what I take away there. And that makes, that to me has huge resonance with disaster studies more generally because misuse of the term disaster, some external thing, it happens to us and we could have never imagined it's it's located in a specific time and place. It's never global. It has no history. That's how it's often used, uh, particularly by policymakers who want to excuse the conditions that create disaster. Um, so by calling it disaster, we never actually deal with the underlying issues at all. So it's, these are not just words that are, that are random. They're doing a lot of work and they're doing a lot of destructive work. And But it's still, then when I think about that, I think of the enormous challenge of if it's epidemiologists, people with technical skills or social scientists, um, people with research skills. What is our intervention here? I mean, we can, you know, back to Jacob's point, we can talk about this. We should continue to talk about this. We can intervene in social media. But there has to be a structural intervention somewhere or we're just going to keep talking. Ellie, I don't know. Let me yeah. give you a chance to react to that. Yeah, well, I think and, you know, kind of looping back to something I think Jacob said in the beginning that we're living through this natural disaster. But I think arguably, you know, the first few cases in December 2020 or sorry, January 2020 and December 2019, that was the natural disaster. This is the man-made disaster. And... Mm -hmm. It, we are where we are because of what we have done and more particularly what we have not done. Um, and, you know, instead of talking about COVID is getting to a place where it might become endemic, why aren't we talking about 
funding our COVID moonshot to control COVID, to figure out what's that bold new idea that's the equivalent of indoor plumbing for mm-hmm. respiratory diseases. You know, where where is the, the money pumping to innovation to think about what are the things we can't even imagine, but we could put in place that would make all our lives better? And, you know. It's, it's not something I'm going to come up with. It's, it's not something that even, you know, any one field necessarily has a, a claim to, to know about. But that's what we should be doing. I'm glad you called it the COVID moonshot, not the COVID Manhattan Project. I mean, even the, the, even the metaphors we use are really important in, in this space. Monica, just getting your reaction to any of that, and we're moving towards conclusion here. So anything left on the table you wanted to bring up? Uh, well, first of all, I want to agree with um, Ellie that that our our moment of of intervention should have been January of of 2020. Um, that there was a whole already an industry of pandemic preparedness, which what happened to it? Um, so I mean, and and you know, I recognize that there 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 were infrastructures. Some of them weren't sufficiently funded. There's a lot of reasons. Um, for that. I don't want to be cavalier with that. One thing I would want to um, throw out to, to, to follow Cecilia and, 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 and bring in a movie that people should think about, which is Groundhog Day. That's what I see endemicity is, is Groundhog Day. We are living over and over and over with the same thing. Um, we need a new concept. We need a plan. We should have had a plan a long time ago, but we need a plan and we need a plan that recognizes we are not living in 1918 anymore. We need a plan that recognizes that masking um, is, is a universal intervention that we could be using. We need a plan that also recognizes, so this was in the, the um, uh, an announcement from the WHO just today or yesterday about the waste that is involved in masking and filters and PPE and so forth. We need to think about that at the same time. As I said on Twitter, we need to learn how to walk and chew gum at the same time. We have multiple man-made disasters that, that we have to live with them. And COVID is one of them. Think big. Cecilia, let's bring you in on this. And I'm pondering the Groundhog Day. I'm trying to think. I guess people with historical sensibility are the Bill Murray in this situation, we're kind of aware that it's, and everybody else is uh, just replaying it. It's a really provocative way to think about and the kind of disturbing one to think about what we're going through here. Cecilia, you want to react to anything Monica said or anything else you wanted to bring to the table before we wrap up? I think, you know, my wrap up is sort of the, how do we tie these things back together? So this idea of moving, of using hijacking endemicity to do this work to shift to an individual responsibility narrative it fits with the entire history of the merchants of doubt narrative individual responsibility is a classic corporate technique to remove responsibility for protecting the health of the public and and activities that we could do that are structural mitigation measures in order to prevent harm and essentially shifting that onto particular people who make good or bad choices. So it also um, enables moralizing things so that you can then blame people who've made bad decisions and those people who die 
or become severely ill made bad decisions. And that is why this is a, a deeply, profoundly troubling kind of theme. All of it is a really problematic way of doing it. And the antithesis of that is putting the public back into public health. And that's something that, you know, we are actually working on with some colleagues. We, um, we have been calling for a reset away from this individual responsibility narrative. And our commentary, you know, was about your health is in your hands or not, which, you know, we, we don't think that that's the way to go to, to kind of, uh, reset the stage. You know, we really, really need to think about collective responsibility protecting the health of the public. We need to be able to center equity. We need to center foundational principles of public health grounded in human rights. So we do have a way forward, but we have to have a different conversation and we have to have a political will to enact this kind of a reset. And so I'm really hoping that we don't have to keep being stuck in Groundhog Day forever. And that we could actually have a reset towards a better collective response. Wow, that's that's so so brilliant. Thank you so much, Cecilia and and Monica and Ellie. You know, putting the public back in, in public health that that's going to resonate with me for for a really really long time. And and so much of what has drawn me to COVID calls in the last couple of years and this amazing work that Scott has done and continued to do. Is, is that there's something really indelible about the way that pandemics and endemics function and play out in the way that disasters do. And that's why I keep calling COVID-19 a natural disaster, or, or as Ellie said, now a man-made disaster, a human, human disaster. Um, but, but what connects those two, I think, is that, is that they're, they're long events. They're, they're not episodic events and, and, and long, um, spatially and geographically. And, and I think, you know, what, what I'm sort of taking away from this conversation is that endemicity is not going to be the last term that scientific term that's hijacked, um, during this ongoing crisis. There's, there's, you know, I don't know how it's going to unfold, but, um, it will continue to unfold and we're going to see new terms that are brought into public consciousness and, and used as, as weapons, for for political and and neo-colonial and neoliberal reasons but but I keep telling myself I literally wake up every morning and I tell myself that this is another good day to fight and and this is another good day to be kind and this is another good day to to talk to people um and and not to demonize people is to try to bring us together and I think that will is still left I mean so much of what we see in the media is that it's it's gone and that people are demoralized and fatalistic but but I think this conversation in particular has helped me to see that it's that it's not. So so thank you all so much for that, and I'll turn it over to Scott. Jacob, thanks for uh, joining us today. I feel like there's nothing this panel couldn't couldn't do. I, I mean, I, I want to reconvene this panel soon, actually, and just take on another another topic. I really enjoyed in the conversation and learned a lot today. Um, and I want to remind everybody that you've been listening to COVID calls, and you can usually catch COVID calls live at 6 p.m. Eastern time. Today is a special uh, doubleheader COVID call, so please join me. We'll close this conversation, and I'll start another one at 7.30 p.m. Eastern time, just 15 minutes with journalist Tara Haley. And we're going to be talking about um, where the anti-vaccine movement is right now, COVID minimizers, the situations in schools, basically whatever Tara wants to talk about, we're going to talk about today. So please do join me for that. And let me again thank my co-host, Jacob Steer-Williams, and my guests, 
Ellie Murray, Cecilia Tamori, and Monica Green. Stay healthy, all of you, and thanks for being with me on COVID Calls.